Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Washington's view of the West is a a national view in which the nation will and must expand over Indian land. And that, of course, means dispossession of Indian people. And that's something that he, he wrestles with. That's Colin Calloway, winner of the 2018 Book of the Year Award from the Journal of the American Revolution for his work, The Indian World of George Washington. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing. Publishers of We Could Perceive No Sign of Them, Failed Colonies in North America, 1526-1689, by David McDonald. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Man, do we have a great show for you today. Uh, we've been doing this podcast for a while now. We've been recording for some time and I've got to speak with a lot of really smart, really great, really wonderful and motivated historians. Uh, but I must say today is a real treat. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Colin Calloway, one of the most lauded and acclaimed, uh, authors writing in the field of history today, uh, a man who has dedicated his career to understanding the role of native peoples in the development of the early history of North America. In 2018, this past year, Colin Calloway was given the Book of the Year Award by the Journal of the American Revolution uh, for his masterpiece, The Indian World of George Washington. And of course, it befalls on yours truly to interview him. Now, I'm not going to gush a lot, but I will say this. When I was still training to become a historian, when I was just a young sprig of a graduate student, one of my academic mentors, a man uh, that was really uh, irreplaceable in my life, Dr. David Dixon, uh, gave me a book written by Colin Calloway. And the book was The Scratch of a Pen, which talked about the importance of the year 1763. And he told me, read this book and then find all the other books written by Colin Calloway and read them too. Uh, Because these are the most important books being written today in the field of uh, sort of American Indian history uh, in the early colonial period in the Revolutionary Era. So, of course, I read the book. I was uh, enamored by it. And I said, I'll go find the other books. Well, that was a lot easier said than done. Because he has written an entire library of books. uh, And he shows no signs of slowing down. In his new book, The Indian World of George Washington, Professor Calloway takes a very long history of George Washington's life, a man in which there has been more biographies written than really anyone else in American history, and it is not even close. And he reevaluates it from the Indian perspective. That is to say, he puts a special emphasis on how Native peoples interacted with Washington and shaped his worldview as an early American. I can't say enough about the book to me, even though there were a lot of good entries, Uh, 2018 was certainly his year because the book is just wonderful. And of course, we have a great review of it at allthingsliberty.com. 
So for today's episode, we sit down with Colin Calloway. We have a discussion really focusing on the father of our country and his views of Native peoples. Uh, and the gloves come off. It's a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with 2018 Book of the Year Award winner, Colin Calloway. Colin Calloway, winner of the 2018 Journal of the American Revolution Book of the Year Award, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. It's a pleasure to be here. What first drew your interest to this topic? Well, I often get that question asked to me about Native American history in general, and um, and I think it also applies to this book uh, as part of a, a strategy for, for what I've been doing. Um, I think my, my attraction to Native American history is that as a non-American, the thing that always intrigued me about American history was the the presence of Native peoples, the thing that always puzzled me, at least as a younger person reading American history, was the absence of Indian people. And I think there are there have been a, there's been a lot of great work done on Native American history by a lot of good people, and you know who some of those people were and are. And yet, <clears throat> I think Native American history still tends in the public mind and in many standard American history texts text and other books to be a side a sideline or even a footnote or a sidebar and I think many of us feel that it needs to be not just in, inserted into American history <clears throat> but inserted in a way that makes it an integral part of the story that there are many things that happen in the course of American history that would not have happened the way that they did without the presence and the power of Native Americans. So I went to George Washington uh, really to think of him as a vehicle, as a, this was a tactic, take what is arguably the most famous person in American history, and to show how Native America and Native Americans mattered significantly in his life, and how developments in Indian country um, that maybe happened kind of off stage in his life, nonetheless shaped the course of that life and influenced the world in which, which he lived. Um, and so it was less an attempt to <clears throat> to retell or to tell a Washington story than it was to um, give a, a broader audience to what I regard as a as as an important and still under uh, valued and under uh, treated aspect of American history, and that's the place of Native Americans in that story. For George Washington, a young man growing up in Virginia, uh, how does he view Native peoples? In your book, you open up with a I think a really striking line when you say that much of his life was due to the labors of unfree African peoples and much of the land that would be the United States uh, are taken from Native people. So how would Washington have viewed uh, the Native world growing up in colonial Virginia? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question because there's not a lot there. Um, I mean, the first real mention of Indian people in, in his writings is in, I think it's the 
1748 when he's uh, he's out on a surveying party uh, and he meets a, a group of Indians and the way he describes them is is pretty stereotypical. They, they they give a dance, so it's a war dance, that kind of thing. And I think his uh, first-hand knowledge of Indian people would have been slight. Of course, there are Indian people, despite the devastation of the 17th century, there are still Indian people living in Virginia. Um, but I think, as in lots of those play, uh, cases, um, Indian people survive almost by hiding in plain sight. And that I'm not sure that Washington had much interaction with them or, or even consciousness of them. And probably I imagine that even as a young person, his ideas and assumptions about Indian people are that they are the other side of the mountains uh, and people that he has not really yet, not really met yet. Um, but that whole story, of course, and that those kind of situations are an important part of Native American history. Years ago, I did a book looking at the um, Abenaki history in, in somewhere like Vermont, where lots of those those people and their stories seem to disappear from the written record. Um, and there was often an assumption that they'd just gone. They'd either migrated to Canada or died out or moved west or, or whatever. And in many cases, of course, they hadn't. Um, but um, they were not visible to the surrounding non-Indian population. And sometimes that, that, that was a survival strategy. You mentioned that Washington's understanding of the Native world was slight. Uh, obviously, uh, his very first task in 1753 will require a sufficient amount of Indian diplomacy. Uh, seeming that he doesn't have a very big resume, uh, why or how does Washington get that assignment? I think in many ways he was the eager beaver. Um, he was looking for... Um, he's an um, ambitious young man. Uh, he was looking for opportunities to go west. He was looking for opportunities to fashion a, a military career. Um, he basically presents himself to Governor Dinwiddie as, a, as I suppose, a volunteer uh, for the person to... Um, go on the mission uh, into the Ohio country, carrying a message to the to the French, quietly requesting that that they withdraw, um, and then of course that receives a negative response, a thanks but no thanks response, um, and the as the French are in, uh, intensifying and increasing their pressure, they're particularly the folks of the Ohio. Uh, Washington is then sent, dispatched with a, a force of a militia. He's actually elevated in, in command by the untimely death of a, of a, of a commander. Um, so it is kind of a, a, a rapid, um, rapid elevation, and he finds himself in a, in a military command with really no, no experience. And of course. This is the point I, I belabor, I suppose, in the book, in an area of the world where I think he's out of his depth, um, where through no disrespect for Washington, he couldn't understand the complexities, the political, cultural, international, intertribal uh, complexities of that world. And he's a, he's a young man. He's, what, you know, the age of... Um, 
most of my students, I suppose. Uh, and he's confronted with people like the half King Tanarison, who are seasoned warriors, veteran campaigners, and pretty uh, astute statesmen and politicians. Washington will be interacting with natives a great deal during the French and Indian War. Uh, so how would you gauge his, his success during that time period as a military commander uh, and his growth? Well, I think it's it's his record in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, is, of course, mixed. Um, it, it, some, in some instances, it, it's a little, less, little short of a disaster, the fort surrender at Fort Necessity. Uh, he's involved in the Braddock uh, defeat where he shows uh, impressive courage, um, comes out of that with an enhanced reputation. But by and large, his, his military record there is, is, is not strong. And even in, when he's participating in, in John Forbes' campaign, uh, which takes the French, takes Fort Duquesne at, at the forks of the Ohio, um, he spends a lot of his time, wastes a lot of his time griping about the Forbes and how he's gotten it wrong, etc. Um, and during the, in the wake of Braddock's defeat, when Washington is stationed and tasked with protecting the Virginia frontier against the assaults of particularly the Shawnees and, and Delawares, um, it, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a thankless task. Um, it's almost impossible to to mount any effective defense there. But even then, he's um, he's taking time off, time away. He goes, you know, leaves his troops, travels east. He's got his own agenda to to see to. One thing that I do think that he learns through that, and he certainly demonstrates it, is an understanding, a respect for Indian warfare. Um, and an understanding that to have a hope of mounting any effective uh, resistance to Indian enemies, he and Virginians and the colonials need Indian allies. And he says quite explicitly, only with Indian only with Indians can we hope to fight Indians. So I think it's a steep learning curve for him. I do think that uh, he learns and. I mean, looking ahead to the revolution, a couple of differences right from the beginning. He's concerned about getting, attracting Indian allies because the tide seems to be flowing toward the British. And also, um, stay with your troops, right? He doesn't, you know, at Valley Forge, he's at Valley Forge. He's not shopping in Williamsburg. Um, so I think there's, um, there's a growth there. Uh, some of it may be just to do with maturity, but I think some of it's um, from the experience of, of his command and his uh, attempts to defend the Virginia frontier against, against Indian assault. You can appreciate this as much as anyone, Colin. There's sort of this, uh, this dark spot in Washington's life and really in American history from the end of the French and Indian War uh, to the beginning of the revolution. But during that time, we see Washington surveying in the West and speculating land in the West and interacting with Native people. So the question I have is, uh, does Washington view Native peoples as just part of the British imperial world now, or does he see them as an obstacle? 
I think he does see them just part of a, a greater British world. I mean, one of the things interesting to me and it was interesting me in writing this book, um, and before I started writing this book, I, let, I read a lot of biographies of George Washington, uh, most of which, you know, going back a long time, most of which said little about Indians, right? but they said an awful lot about land, Western land or just land. And if you replaced Western with Indian, or if you put Indian in front of land, that meant those books were a lot about Indian land. But Washington doesn't usually call the land Indian land. He f refers to it as land, as Western territory, Western land. So it's almost as if he thinks of the West, this incredible uh, territory, as a bounty there for the empire of Virginia, of people like him himself, or ultimately the new nation. And to the extent that he thinks of Indians, yeah, he recognizes them as an obstacle because they are there. Um, but they are people who, it's almost as if they are people who happen to be on that land. And as you rightly point out, that's a period in his life and in American history that tends to get glossed over because we, we, we shift attention to the to the Stamp Act and all of that and the road to revolution. But I actually think, uh, and other people have made this point, that the question of access to Indian land and who will, and who will get that land is pivotal. Uh, the British... Um, imposed the proclamation line of 1763 and that's that's a huge um a huge blow to people like washington who've been investing in indian land speculating in indian land traveling the west looking for the for the best land this seems to shut the door in their face and is an important event and an important um point i think in the alienation of the affections of people like george washington and other founding fathers um from the British Empire. The American Revolution is going to complicate a lot of things for George Washington, as of course we know. One of them is his relationship with Indians. The Iroquois Confederacy disintegrates during the American Revolution, um, but at the same time, uh, the United States is signing peace treaties with the Delaware on the frontier. How does Washington view Native peoples during the Revolution? Yeah, there's an interesting, very interesting thing that I, I discovered, and that is that the day before crossing the Delaware, right, when he's clearly got on a lot of on his mind, he sends a, he writes a couple of letters to Indians, to Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Maliseet people up in Nova Scotia, Northern Maine, sort of reminding them, you know, don't forget your your alliance to the United States. So he understands how important they are. He fears attack by Indians and the British from Canada, because after all, that's what people had experienced and feared during the French and Indian Wars. And now the players have changed. That is, it's the British there rather than the French. But just as most Indian people lean toward the French 20 years earlier, now more often than not, they lean toward the British because at least the British have some record of trying to protect Indian land. And Americans seem determined to, to get Indian land. And of course, Washington is of that mindset. Um, he believes 
that the nation must win its independence, but it must also have a future, and that will be a future built on Indian land. So <clears throat> there is a uh, that's a uh, that's a challenge, that's a problem. Um, and during the revolution, Indian attacks uh, divert attention, divert energy from the war in the East and from the Continental Army's resources. Um, the most um, most significant event, of course, is when Washington dispatches General John Sullivan to uh, burn out the Iroquois, scorched earth, earth campaign. Um, but the Indian War in the West continues long after that and even continues after um, the surrender at Yorktown when it seems the war is over. Um, and I think Washington is doing more than simply retaliating for Indian attacks or even defending the frontier against Indian attacks. I think that he has his eye on the future. I think he is a man of vision. And he realizes that if the war ends with Britain acknowledging American independence, which seems increasingly likely, almost, I suppose, from the moment France joins the war. That's good, but what will that mean if there's not a significant transfer of territory? Because, remember, the British had put a barrier on Western expansion at the Appalachian Mountains in 1763. In 1774, they extended the, the boundaries of the province of Quebec down to the Ohio River. And some people, certainly in Europe, were talking about bringing an end to a, to a war, to the war, <clears throat> with which basically left the um, the combatants with the territory that they held at, at the time. So it's possible, it was possible, that the war could end with American independence and with America, with the United States, or the newly independent United States, bounded by the Appalachian Mountains. And Washington needed to prevent that. And one way to do that is to try and demonstrate a claim to Western territory. And having American armies out, out there does that. Do you think Washington continued that policy into his presidency? I think absolutely, yeah. I think Washington, throughout his life, is looking to Western land, Indian land, for his personal fortune, for Virginia, and for Virginia's expansion, and then for the nation's expansion. Um, so I think that for him, the... The expansion of the United the, the United States must be an expansionist power, right? uh, and he uses the term empire, um, the term that we uh, don't normally uh, apply to in American history for America, because that's where he sees the future. And of course, at the end of the American Revolution, the, the United States is in a situation similar to the Brit British 20 years before. They've won a war, and it's the most costly war they've fought, and they're virtually bankrupt. And what does the United States have? As it starts out, life as a new nation has to build the infrastructure, the government, etc., etc. It has worthless paper currency, and it has the land that Britain 
has transferred to it at the Treaty of Paris, you need to be able to transfer those Indian lands into American real estate to generate income, to sell lands to settlers, to fill the nation's coffers, etc. And Washington's view of the West is a, a national view in which the nation will and must expand over Indian land. Um, and that, of course, means dispossession of Indian people. And that's something that he, he wrestles with. What do you feel is the legacy of George Washington's Indian policy as president? Is it fair to say that you can draw a line from a lot of the problems faced by Native communities today back to the Washington administration, or is that too far? Well, it's a long line, but it's I think certainly there are precedents there. I mean, I would say if I was to sum up Washington's legacy in, uh, in one word, it would be ambivalent. Um, so yes, he's committed to national expansion, and his view of Indian policy, and he spends a lot of time talking about this with Henry Knox, is predicated on the assumption that Indians must and will give up their land. Um, I don't think he has. He he, he spends loses too much sleep over that. The question is how to get it, and one way to get it, of course, is to go to war and drive Indians from their lands, and on occasion, he will do that. Um, but that's that's almost plan of last resort, or at least plan B. Right? Plan A is to deal with Indians justly and fairly. We have to take their land, therefore we will do what the British did, make treaties with them and purchase them their lands and give them a fair price. And in Washington's view, this he hoped this could be done almost bloodlessly because Indians would be glad to give up land that was becoming less valuable to them as hunting territory, as settlers encroached, and then would move away. Uh, obviously, it didn't happen that way very often. And when Indians refused peace and refused treaties, then Washington was quick to denounce them as recalcitrant and said they had to be extirpated, they had to be destroyed. Um, so... What you see in Washington's presidency and, and, and of course, as first president, he has this unique opportunity to sort of set the Indian policy of the new nation. You see these two signs, um, aspirations and rhetoric that talks about a just Indian policy, and then the dark side of American Indian policy, which, of course, leaves Washington and subsequent American Indian policy makers open to um, pretty solid charges of, of hypocrisy. There is another element, of course, that comes into Washington's policy, into Washington's Indian policy, and that's what we'd call the civilization program. If you are going to take Indian land and still still present yourself as doing the right thing for Indian people. And Washington was concerned about this for himself, for his country, for the nations of the world who are watching and posterity. Uh, what, is it that, what is it that Indians get out of this in return? And Washington comes to believe that what they get is civilization. If you can teach Indian people to become, quote-unquote, civilized, which means sedentary, 
agriculturalist doing American style plough agriculture, not Native American women growing growing crops, then you could save them because if they continue, if this continued just to exist as hunters in the new world that was coming, they were they were doomed. If they could make this adjustment, um, they had a chance. And of course, that so-called civilization program in its many different forms has pervaded United States Indian policy from Washington's time well up into the 20th century that the United States government will do the right thing for Indian people and the United States government will decide what is the right thing for Indian people and as we know time and time again what United States policymakers sometimes sometimes with the best of intentions thought was for the right, the right thing for Indian people often turned to be turned out to be the very worst so yes there's, there there are many threads running through this that we can trace back to the foundation of the nation it may be a little too much to lay it at the, the responsibility at the feet or on the shoulders of George Washington because what he was wrestling with with was a, a, a kind of a national dilemma. I mean, how are you how are you going to do one and still do the other? Um, and in, in the book, I, 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 I use the example of John Ross to sort of highlight this or to illustrate it because John Ross is principal chief of the Cherokee at the time of the uh, Indian removal in the Trail of Tears. And the Cherokees, many Cherokees, tried Washington's policy of civilization, drew up a constitution modeled on the United States, adopted American-style agriculture, um, sent sons uh, to American schools, even adopted slavery, etc., published a newspaper right, in Cherokee and in English, and it didn't save them. Right? They were still expelled during the Indian Removal Act. Um, but John Ross, who sees all that happening, still names one of his sons George Washington. And I think for an Indian person in the 1820s and 1830s, when Indian removal sentiment is, is, is gathering momentum, and now you have Andrew Jackson in the White House, looking back to a time when the president was George Washington, who was at least struggling with trying to get this this balance right? Um, that must have looked like a, a lost a lost age. Colin Calloway, winner of the 2018 Book of the Year Award from the Journal of the American Revolution, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. the The award is an honor, and this has been a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.